Let's pray. Father, we um, come to you um, in Christ and, and because of Christ. In fact, it's only because of Jesus that we are able to come to you. And so we we thank you, Father, for your Son who has saved us, who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it is our desire today, Lord, um, to see Jesus magnified as we proclaim his word. Father, I pray that you above all else, would be glorified today through the proclamation of your word. And we know that you in part do that um, through the sanctification of, of your church as the word goes goes forward, as well as the salvation of, of the lost. And so we pray that you would continue those, those works as well, again, um, for your glory, but for our, for our good. Lord, we do need to hear from you. We know that we hear from you through your word. And so we pray that you would speak, continue to speak to us today through your word, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to give understanding that we might go forward and apply what it is that we hear, what it is that we learn to our lives for the good of the church and for your glory. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we ask these things for your sake. Amen. Um. Before we get started, I do have a couple announcements. I know normally we, we do the announcements in the bulletin, and I've kind of slacked on a couple of things and, and making sure we get them in the bulletin. So I just want to throw these out there. Um, first, uh, this Friday, so this coming Friday, 7 p.m. at the Long's House, we're going to begin, begin again. Right, we're going to begin um, uh, going through um, an Answers in Genesis video series that we started years ago, and we never quite got finished, and so we're going to try a little bit different format to see if we can if we can be a little bit more um, successful, if you will, in that series. So, so we're going to do that. Um, you know, as far as the the demographic, I'll say this: it's not for young children. You know, um, but other than that, all are invited. So um, it's not not a kids thing. You know, so I wouldn't take Hunter with me. Um, but but you know, I'd say from you know teen on up. Um, it's, it's definitely um, beneficial and would be for you. So, so we're doing that this Friday, and we're going to kind of play it by ear how we do it. It's, it's going to be at homes, and we're going to work on how often we do it and all that. But this is going to be the beginning, beginning of that, and so we'll give more details as far as um, you know, when we're going to continue that. But at least once a month, if not every two to three weeks, something like that, we're going to just see how that works and how that works for everybody. But it's going to be this Friday at, at 7 p.m. at the Long's House, and we'll have hopefully some other people there. Um, we've got some friends from some other churches that are that are like-minded um, and small like us, and so we should have a have a good group of, of folks. So this Friday, 7 p.m., um, we're going to be going through the Foundation series with Answers in Genesis. Um, also, September 21st, um, we are going to be having a members meeting here after the service. So September 21st, that's two Sundays, um, two Sundays from now. What we're going to do is we're going to have that at about, uh, let's say, 11.50-ish, probably about 15 minutes after we, we, we finish the service. Right? And the reason we'll give a 15-minute break is if we have visitors, we don't want to be like, awkward, you got to leave, you know, because we're going to do this members meeting. So that, that gives us 15 minutes to, you know, if we have visitors, greet visitors, those who aren't members, we can do kind of a normal post-service fellowship. And then, um, and then we'll have our members meeting after that. And, and it'll be 
It won't be long. I mean, I say it'll be brief, probably 20, 30 minutes, 30 minutes tops, maybe maybe less. Just a couple things that we need to we need to go go over and go through. So we're going to do that again September 21st, and we'll continue to announce that and remind you of that over the next um, week and a half, two weeks. Also, um, and I know this we did put in the bulletin, Reformation Day helps. So Reformation Day is coming up. Uh, I think we're going to end up... Uh, we're going to end up celebrating Reformation Day on, see, it's the last, Kyle just asked me, the last Sunday, the, the 26th, I think it's the last Sunday. So it's the last Sunday of, um, of October. So um, just the way the dates fall, um, it would either be on a Friday, which is actually Reformation Day, but we'll probably do it that Sunday evening on the 26th. Um, but what, what we're asking for is, is help. Um, the last several years, Randy and Sherry have done a fantastic job in, in um, putting it all together for us, and we're so appreciative for that. But it's time to, to kind of pass the torch and let other people, other people get involved as well. Um, and so we're asking for, for your help in that. So if you are interested, um, want to help in whatever capacity you're able to or want to, let Randy know. He's going to be kind of, I think, we'll say coordinating the help is what he's doing. Um, uh, so, so if you're interested, please, please let him know. And if nobody says they're interested, then we'll just ask people to be interested. So, but no, um, if you are interested, talk to Randy about it. We definitely, definitely need some help with that. So, okay. Um, today we're going to begin, um, see, we finished second, second John. We're going to begin second John. We finished first John, um, two Sundays ago. And so as I had kind of debated as we were approaching it, what I was going to do, I thought, you know what, First, uh, Second John is relatively short, First, uh, Third John is relatively short, and since, since we're here and we've kind of got the context of it all, we're just going to continue, uh, continue going through that. So, um, you know, Second John, probably four sermons, and, and, and Third John, probably the same, but I thought we're going to continue that. So that's what we're going to be doing. So we're going to start, we're going to start Second John today, and, and really today is going to be, it's going to be a little different. Um, it's going to be, a, I would say, lesson slash sermonette, right? Because there's some background information. Some of it we already know or should know from, from when we did this, even though it was a long time ago, uh, with First John, um, but, but yet similar context, okay, uh, uh, written same time, all that stuff. We'll get into that. And so today is really kind of, again, like a, 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 a lesson slash sermonette. So it's kind of both combined. We'll see how that works. I don't know. We'll see how long it goes as well. So, but that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're doing. Um, I think, and I want to say this, I think giving the background information um, when we start, especially when we start uh, a new book or a new letter or, or whatever it is, I think it's important because in part, at least for me, it, it tends to make the text real. I have, and this is, this is a, a personal problem, and, and I suspect some of us struggle with the same thing. I have a difficult time not um, over-intellectualizing or just simply intellectualizing um, Scripture when I study it. Um, we understand that the, the, the Bible isn't or wasn't given to us in a, in a vacuum, right? Like, kind of like the Ten Commandments, right? You know, how God etched the Ten Commandments on the stone, right? That's not how, how he gave us his word, right? That he, he, used, he used men, right, um, who at times, as we see with John, wrote, wrote letters, wrote letters to the, to the church, wrote letters to other believers. Now, we know that, that, that they were being divinely controlled, right, when, when that was being done, but it was, it was being done for the purpose of, of Scripture, right? And so by, at least for me, by, by even today, briefly going over some of this background information, it helps guard me from, from 
just turning the text into some intellectual work that God supernaturally etched on stone, right? But, but there is a personal element to it um, and behind it as well. And so I, I think it's important to, to do that every time we approach a new, a new book or a new letter is to spend just a little bit of time going over that background information, right? Which, again, I think makes it, at least for me, makes it, makes it real, makes it, makes it personal, right? Keeps it out of that whole vacuum thing. Um, first, second, third, John, right? Obviously, they bear his name, don't they, right? So the Apostle John is, is who we uh, ascribe as the author of um, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all, all letters, right? As well as the Gospel of John and, and the book of Revelation. Now, what we'll find in, in the letter of 2 John is there's nothing explicit that names him as, as the author. Um, however, we have church history, right, that, that names him as, as the author. We go to the, the, the first, second century, second century, really, um, church, right? Second century church history says John, John wrote this letter, right? And that is, that is a testimony for us, right? But also as you read, um, and, I, and I think this is probably the greatest evidence that, that he was the author of this letter, is, is as you read Second John, and I encourage you to do that. It's really short. You can probably read it in 10 minutes, right? Um, so go home and read it this week sometime. But as you read this letter, you're going to say, hey, whoever, whoever wrote this was the same guy that wrote that, that first one, right? I mean, it's, it's obvious through the content and, and the context and the writing style of Second John that it was written by the same person who, who, wrote, who wrote First John. I think even the, the undiscerning believer could, could see that as they read the, the two letters or the three letters. That Wait, there's, there's such a great similarity through all three, right, that, that surely they were written by... Okay. Um, also, there's really lack of any credible evidence that anyone outside of the Apostle John right, wrote, wrote this letter. In verse 1, and let's, let's turn there if you haven't already. Let's turn to Second, um, second John. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin reading. And we're going to go through some of this background information. At least uh, the first part of verse 1 will kind of give us uh, or lead us into some of this background information. Um, verse 1, he says, the elder, right? I'll just stop right there. The elder to the elect lady, the elder, the, the, the writer, the author of this letter identifies himself as simply the elder. Right? Listen, John was an apostle, right? He could have said, I, John, the apostle, right? The one whom Jesus loved, Right? The one who leaned against his breast at the Last Supper. That's me writing this letter. Right? He could have done that, but he didn't. He said, um, he said the elder. Listen, John, when he wrote this, he was, he was one elder in age, right? And he was two, an elder as, as in pastor. He's really the, the elder elder, right? Or an elder elder. Um, but he identifies uh, in this letter himself as, as elder. And by, by doing so, he makes it personal, right? And he makes it it's pastoral. You know, it's, it's evident by how he just identifies himself as elder, um, that he has clear 
um, pastoral care over, over the recipient. And so he says in verse 1, he says, the elder, all right, so who wrote it? The elder. We know that's John identifying himself as Pastor John. It'd be like Randy writing you a letter and saying, Pastor Randy, you know. But he wrote the letter to the elect lady and her children. Now, some scholars, and, and if you have or look through your commentary or maybe even your notes in the, the bottom of your Bible, depending what kind of study Bible you have, may I may identify or want to identify this, this title as, as a metaphor for, for the church, right? The elect lady really meaning the, the church and her, her children, right? The, the people of the church, right? The thing is, there's really no credible evidence or biblical basis um, for that metaphorical use of the elect lady and and her children. I think that that a literal interpretation, right, which is what we employ unless it's clear through Scripture that it's to be used um, non-literal or metaphorical or whatever the case might be, but a literal interpretation as we're reading this letter would, would lead us to believe that we've got this pastor, the elder, writing this letter to someone that he identifies as the elect lady and... To her children, now, as far as as far as children is concerned, I believe that it's it's a reference to her literal offspring, right? But also, in in part, could be a reference to, I'll say, um, spiritual children. Remember the Apostle Paul. How did he how did he refer to to Timothy, right? In First Timothy, First um, Timothy chapter one. If we can, if I can get there. Okay, First Timothy chapter 1, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, To Timothy, my what? My true child in the faith, right? So he refers to Timothy as his, his true child, kind of a, a, spiritual, uh, a spiritual child, if you will. So is it possible with this elect lady when, when um, John the elder says, right, to the elect lady and her children, I think he means her offspring, right, her biological offspring. But it could be also those who maybe she's, she's led to the Lord, Right. Um, It could. Absolutely. Don't know for sure. But I would say that it probably includes, you know, both groups, quite possibly. But nonetheless, a personal letter written by Pastor John to the elect lady and her 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 children. Now, I often wonder. And as I study this passage, I I wonder about this, this descriptor um, that he uses uh, for her. We don't know, obviously, who she is. Right. Or where she was specifically. But I wonder about this, um, the elect lady. Now, we know, we know what he means, or we should know what he means by elect, right? He means, he means chosen, right? Chosen as in Ephesians 1, um, chapter 4. It's a little bit harder to flip through your Bible when you're holding the hand mic. It's all right. All right, Ephesians... Um, Ephesians 1, 4, Apostle Paul says, actually, I'll just start reading in 3, I'll read 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Third third time's a charm, is that right? Maybe? You have it right. Okay. All right. Um, even as he chose us in him, yes, please, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him 
in love, he predestined us, he chose us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul here is referring to God's choosing certain people for himself for salvation, right? Saving, right, people from himself. God saving people from himself, from his wrath, and for him, right, as possessions, if you will, for glory, right? And these chosen people, right, saved people then are God's elect. Now, concerning the elect, John MacArthur says that they are, we are, right, selected by God for eternal glory. So John uses this this term and uses this term appropriately, right, for the elect lady. We know that he was writing to a believer. But I wonder why I wonder why John John uses this term. And this is where I just speculate. And again, it's I think it's me just trying to keep this this letter personal, right? To keep it real, to guard myself again against just over-intellectualizing the text as though it's some some school school textbook. But I wonder, did did he have maybe a previous uh, conversation uh, with her concerning this doctrine, right? I mean, maybe, maybe she recently came as a result of his last visit to a, a full understanding of God's sovereignty when it, when it comes to salvation. I mean, I don't know, you know, but again, again I, I wonder that, right? Or, or maybe he's just writing and referring to her as the elect lady as, as an encouragement, right? He's wanting to remind her of her position with and before God. He wants to say to her, right, that, that you, are, you are his and he is yours, not, not because you did anything, right, but because he, because he chose you. You are, in essence, his possession for his for his eternal glory, right? So again, is, is he saying that to her? Um, I don't know. Encouragement? Again, I don't, I don't know why he uses that title, okay? Um, but regardless, I think it highlights um, the personal nature of this, of this letter. Again, we don't, we don't need to know uh, from self-identification that John wrote it or, or what the lady's name was who, who received it. I, I, here's what I imagine, right? At the time, John was in Ephesus. Uh, at least that's where we believe, right? And she was wherever, okay? He, we know she wasn't in Ephesus because he says at the end of the letter that he has more to tell her, but he wants to, wants to see her in person and tell her, right? So she was obviously some distance from, from Ephesus. But I, I just imagine she was wherever she was, doing whatever she was doing that one day, and uh, uh, a carrier, courier, whoever, walks through the door. And he says, hey, I just got back from Ephesus, and uh, John wanted, thanks, John wanted me to give this to you, right? And so she opens it, and she reads, the elder, and she knows, and she thinks, John, Pastor John, right, to the elect lady, right? And she just smiles because she knows exactly what he meant by that. Again, was it that previous conversation, trying to encourage her, whatever the case, right? And again, I go through that, and I think about that for the whole purpose of, if anything, making it, making it personal, right? We understand that it wasn't. It wasn't written. It wasn't written in a vacuum, right? But it was written by John, right? Apostle, the Apostle John. But it was written by by Pastor John to the elect lady, whoever she was, right? For the purpose of of edifying, encouraging, correcting. Very much a pastoral letter.
Okay, much better. As far as when it was written, it was written uh, approximately the same time period that First John was written, um, mid '90s, right? So these these were the last uh, first, second, third John revelation, right? When it was the last, um, as far as dating is concerned, um, book that we have in the Bible, which would have been like 98 um, A.D. And so the timing of Second John was was mid '90s, which is which was when First um, John was written as well. We don't we don't know, you know. Uh, which was written first? Was it First John? Was it Second John? Was it Third John? They're all within that same period, say ninety A.D. to ninety-five A.D. And there's there's nothing in First John, or even when we get to Third John, um, you know, there's nothing to indicate that the recipients of those letters um, were familiar with any of the other letters. I mean, we think about it, right? I mean, in today's society with with mass media and all this stuff, we just get on the internet and we can read who wrote what to whomever, whenever, wherever, however, right? Well, we know that they didn't they didn't have that right in the first century, okay? So there's nothing to indicate that um, the elect lady, right, was one familiar with any of the other letters, right? Not to mention we don't know in, in what order the letters were written. The reason, again, we have first, second, third is it's in the uh, as far as how it's um, uh, ordered in scripture, just has to do with the length of the letter. First John is the longest of the three. There's more words in it, so it's the letter of First John. Right, Second John has um, a little less words than First, and Third John has less than the Third. At least that's with the Johns. When we get the Corinthians, we know that the Second Corinthians was actually a second letter in series, and so that's why Second is Second, First is First. But in the case of these three letters, we don't know. Um, as far as the content and context, right, it's very similar to, to to First John, and that's where I would ask. I would say, bear with me. Uh, you know, even though we're going to spend just four Sundays in uh, Second John. We're going to be dealing with similar content, um, extremely similar and sometimes exact same content as, as we did in in First John, right? And I hope it, it shouldn't. Let me say this. I don't want to say I hope it doesn't seem redundant, right? It shouldn't seem redundant because even today as we get into the little kind of sermonette part of, of this morning, dealing with the issue of, of love, right? At first I thought about that as I was studying and I'm like, I hope, I hope it really doesn't seem redundant. I mean, yeah, we've heard it. We've heard it over the last year, you know. And then I found myself thinking something, doing something, saying something yesterday, being confronted by the fact that I still don't, after having spent all this time in, right, First John, I don't love like I should. Why? Why I should? So, you know, maybe I just need to hear it again. Um, but I suspect that if I need to, I need to hear it again and be reminded of it again. We. You know, most of us, if not all of us, probably need the same thing. Um, in it, we're going to find that he addresses the, the issues of, of and topics of truth and love, right? Obedience deals, again, with false teachers and false teachings. Again, with the purpose to guard, to edify, and to encourage. Okay, now that's kind of the, the background in a nutshell, right? We spent a lot more time on background with First John, um, but because it's very similar, Second John's very similar, we're not going to go into all the, the extra, extra details. But just now it's written by John, the pastor to the elect lady, someone that he has pastoral, pastoral care and concern over. Um, so read with me now verses 1 through 3. And we're going to actually look at these, these three verses, uh, really starting with 1b because we kind of looked at, at, at the first part of 1. But he says, the elder... To the elect lady and her children, 
whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. So we're going to look at three points in this text, starting with verse 1. We're going to look at the, the, the works of truth. I'm sorry, I didn't have an outline ready for this morning. But uh, um, the works of truth, the presence of truth, and the blessings of truth. In verse 1, concerning the works of truth, the, the first is the work of truth is, is love, right? He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. See, his love for her was not based on sentimentality or emotion, but his love for her was what? a result of the truth working in him and through him. First right? John 4, 7, recall, right? He says, Beloved, let us what? Let us love one another, for love is from God, right? The basis of love is, is what? The basis of love is God. Again, I... I I don't want to rehash that, um, not in its entirety, right? I mean, we've spent a lot of time considering that over the last several months, but it is something that we need to, again, we need to be reminded of, right? The basis of love, John says to her, the basis of my love for you, elect lady, is it's not you, right? It's, it's, it's the truth, the truth concerning who, who Christ is, right? So turn to me to the Gospel of John, or turn with me to the Gospel of John real quick. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse um, 6. And then we're going to go over to chapter 17. Uh, 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them. He's, he's praying now to the Father, but he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The apostle John back here as he's writing this letter says, listen, I, I, I love you as a result of truth, the, the truth concerning who Christ is. Christ, in fact, is the truth, right? He is the source of truth. He is the definition of truth, right? I love you because his word is true, right? What he has done and who he is. Listen, John loves her, because, because of who Christ is, not because of who she is. You know, I was thinking about that as I was studying and kind of doing some other things and just going through the text in my mind. Um, I, I don't think that it's ever, I don't know if inappropriate is the word, but I don't think it's ever right to say to somebody else, or at least it's not reflecting of, of true love, I love you because you, just go ahead and fill in the blank. I love you, dear, because you make me feel good. You know what? If I love her because she makes me feel good, it's not, it's not, it's not the love that, that John talks about. It's not agape love. I love you because you're so pretty. I love you because you fix my computer. 
that's 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 not love. That's a man-centered love, right? The love that John's talking about here in First John, it's not First John. I'm probably going to confuse all that. But in Second John, right? It's a Christ-centered love. It's a God-centered love. He says, "Dear lady, I love you. I love you because of Christ, right? Really, it's it's Christ in you. It's Christ in me that that I love that results in." My love. Uh, back to let's go to First John, right? First John four nineteen, and I so think that this is a verse that that we we have to uh, be constantly aware of when it comes to this, at least this topic of love and loving others. John four nineteen. We love why, and we can only love because God first loved us, because He first loved us, and again agape. Love, not to get in that, but our, our ability to love, right, to truly love, to agape love, right, is only because of Christ, right? And we love because he first loved us. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about John's, um, not, not simply addressed to her, but, but him telling her he loves her because of the truth, I wonder, do we, do we view other believers as as Christ views them, and when it comes to this issue, right, and, and loving as we're supposed to love, do we view other believers as Christ views them? I mean, how, how, if we don't love, then what do we do? We hate, right? If we don't love, we hate. There's no, well, I kind of love you. I, I don't think that works, right? I, I kind of love. There's no such thing as kind of love, right? A little bit love, right? I mean, we either love or we hate. There's, there's no middle ground. Um, so the question that I ask, and I ask this of myself, and I ask this of all of us, is how, how can we then hate? How can we hate what Christ loves? What Christ loves? I mean, how can we hate who Christ loves and who He purchased with His blood? I mean, I, I just imagine—I <laughs> just imagine the conversation. So here we are. Just imagine we're, we're, we're pretending here. Here we are. We're talking poorly about the elect lady, right? Right? And and our 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 regard towards her is not love, but it's it's hate. Right? And then Jesus walks in. Maybe he's he's in the other room. We didn't know it. Right? Because he's he's always not in the other room, but he's always in the room, right? Um and Jesus overhears the conversation, right? And he walks into the room and he says He says, How dare you how dare you talk about my child? That way, do you know what? Do you know what I? Do you know what I did for her? In fact, do you know what I? I did for you, right? I died. I died for you, and I died for her. And here you are hating what I purchased with with my own blood. How dare you, right? So, how as believers can we hate who Christ loves and who He purchased with with His blood? Well, we know going back to First John that we can't, right? If we don't love the brethren, then 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 what? Then the love of Christ is not in us. Then we're not we're not truly believers. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with this, and we know that we do, right? And we know that we need to grow in love, and we'll examine that here um, momentarily. So the goal then is this, right? It's to change how we see and view others, right? That we need to see others, and we need to view others as Christ. Views them as Jesus, as Jesus sees them. We need to be aware of this, or I should say that 
being now aware of this, right? We have to be intentional in our lives and viewing others as Christ views them, right? And again, we know that it's something that we have to work at, but should desire to work at, again, because of who Christ is and what he's done for us and how he views us and how he views them. All right, so that's the first work of truth, right? first work of truth was love. The second work was unity. Uh, in, in verse 1c, John says, I love it because he applies it to all believers. He says, whom I love in the truth, elect lady, and not only I, but all who know the truth. Now, by all, in this case, John means all. John's talking about all believers. What he's saying is all true believers, right, will love other believers, and I believe this love will result in unity. Right? Listen, this is a this is a, a in part a, a, a promise. Okay, it's not. Hang on, I lost my place. No, sorry, I got ahead of myself. All right, let's go back. So let's put it this way. All right, um, truth. All right, equals love, equals unity. Truth equals love equals unity. It's, uh, it's a process, right? It's really, it really goes along with the, the sanctification process, right? Um, something that not only we should desire, right, but something that as believers we should actively be pursuing. I know in the equipping hour, we've been dealing with this issue of, of church unity, haven't we, right? Over the past, however long we've been going through this, this lesson series, right? Talking and dealing with the issue of, of church unity. So I want to summarize it just briefly, right? We're going to continue next week and, and continue on however many lessons we probably will go through the end of the year working through this lesson series. But I want to summarize just briefly this issue of unity. If, if you were to come to me, right, and say, hey, you know what? I don't, I don't feel that we as a church are unified like we are. And, and we understand that we're probably not, right? Because it's a growth process, right? We should be growing as a church in, in unity, right? Our closeness should be growing uh, uh, moment by moment, day by day. We are not where we ought to be. We're not where we want to be. In fact, right, when it comes to the issue of love, when it comes to the issue of unity, this side of heaven will never be where we want to be and will never be where we ought to be, Right? It will not be, our love and our unity will not be perfected un, until heaven, but yet we should be growing as a church closer, closer to that. But you come and you say, hey, you know what? We're not unified like we, what, like we ought to be, like I desire us to be. So how do we do that? How as a church, how as a church then do we grow in unity? What I'm not going to tell you, especially according to this verse, right? What I'm not going to tell you is well, we, should, we should do more stuff, you know? I mean, if we're not close, we ought to get close. You know, we ought to go out to dinner more. We ought to have more uh, uh, fellowships and, and more Bible studies. And I mean, we should do those things, right? I mean, we, we need to, I wish we could, right? I know sometimes time and space and all that separates us from us, but, but I wish we could spend more time in fellowship and more time around the table and more time, more time in Bible study and all that stuff, right? But that's not the answer to growing in unity. The answer to growing in unity is this, pursue love. We want to grow in our unity as a church. We should pursue love. And as we grow then in our love for one another, we will grow in unity 
as a body, as a local church. Okay. Verse 2. The presence of truth. I'm just going to read verse 1 again because it's just part of the same sentence and it makes it easier. All right. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Listen, truth resulting in love and love in unity is both a presence and a promise. We have this now and we will forever. Listen, practically, it's, it's not a someday, okay? Uh, uh, dealing with love and dealing with unity. Well, I mean, I can't, I can't love like I ought to love. And I'm never truly going to be able to love someone um, uh, uh, like I'm commanded to until heaven, right? And we're never truly going to uh, uh, be unified like we want or we ought to be until heaven. And so let's just wait till heaven, right? No, right? That, 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 that doesn't work. Um, listen, it is a present reality, okay? Um, the truth abides in us. He says now, right? And that truth then abiding in us now should now be what? Producing love and love producing unity that will be one day perfected in heaven. So if you will, we're preparing, right? View it that way. We're preparing for heaven where it will all be perfected. Okay, one, we know that believers, right? Um, see if I can string this together. This is the truth abiding in us now and forever. One, we know that believers have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Two, then, having the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, we don't walk in spiritual darkness, but we live in the light. And we live in light of spiritual truth as revealed through Scripture and then giving understanding by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 1 John 2. And we'll see this. 1 John 2, we'll, we'll, read, uh, we'll start in verse 20, read a couple verses, and then we'll jump, uh, jump forward. 1 John 2, 20. Okay, he says in 2.20, but you having been anointed by the Holy One, right? And you have all knowledge. Listen, we've been given the Holy Spirit as an eternal, it's an eternal promise, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit as believer dwells, believers dwells within us, and and that's an eternal, it's an eternal reality, right? And in verse twenty one, he says, "So I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth." And then in verse twenty seven, he says, "But the anointing that you received from Him, what?" It abides in you, abides in you, and you have no need then that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide then in him. Listen, the truth, okay, abiding in us should motivate us to love and unity. And again, we know, and I don't know I mentioned it, right? It's just not, it's broken. I mean, our love is broken no matter how much we grow in it, no matter how much we pursue it and seek to desire it. Our love for one another is until eternity marred by sin, 
right? The unity that we pursue as, as a church and even the unity that we attain as, as a church, it's broken and, and it's going to be broken and it's marred by sin like, like our love. It won't be perfected um, until heaven. But that doesn't mean we don't we don't pursue it, right? One as believers, we should desire that, and, and I think we do. I mean, I think as as genuine believers, if we examine our our hearts, right, um, and and as we examine our hearts concerning love and unity, I think all of us would ad- admit that, that that we desire it. I mean, I I want to love one. I want to love God as I should love God, and I and I don't, and I want to grow in that love for God, and as a result of my growing. Um, and love for God. I I, I want to grow my love for you. I, I want to love, I want to love you more, and I want that I want that to grow. And and I know that as as I grow my love for God, as I as I grow my love for for His church, right? That we then as His church is is gonna we are then are going to grow in unity. And it's not gonna be perfect. And and it's gonna there's gonna be times when it just outright stinks and we still have problems and we still have issues and we still have disagreements and 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 whatnot right it doesn't mean i i don't pursue it right we we should pursue it we must pursue it we should be motivated by christ to pursue love and love unity all right verse three verse three is what i have titled if you will the blessings of truth, and we'll see in verse three. These blessings are grace, mercy, and peace. They are spiritual blessings. He says in verse three, "Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and in or truth and love." Now, what a great greeting! You know, the Apostle Paul often uh, 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 at the beginning of his letters greets the whole grace and peace kind of thing, right? And, you know, John does it, does it a little bit differently. I'm not that, that Paul is wrong and John is right or, or vice versa. But a lot of times you'll see in some of the, the other greetings that Paul gives where he's like greeting with grace and peace. He's kind of, kind of greeting them with grace and peace in the sense that he's, he's uh, asking for that blessing to be stowed upon you, right? Almost as though he's, he's praying for grace and peace upon you. I pray for grace and peace upon you, right? And that's right. Okay, one, as believers, we should be doing that, right? We should be praying for one another that God's grace and God's mercy and his peace would would abound in our lives, right? And then and then John, right, he says what? He says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He says that, that we have it and, and we're going to have it. So John says we have it and we're going to have it. And Paul says, I'm going to pray for it for you. And I think what it is is this. And it kind of gives us just a, a pattern when it comes at times to pray for things that we know are guaranteed, right? Okay, John says grace, peace, or grace, mercy, peace is a guaranteed thing, right? Here's what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, I know it's a guaranteed thing, but I so desire it for the church, I'm still going to pray for it, right? It's like Jesus. He's going to come back, isn't he? Well, we know that, right? And he's going to come back um, in his in his perfect timing. He knows when that's going to be. We don't know that that's going to be, right? So should we pray for his return? I mean, why pray for something that's a guaranteed thing, right? Do you desire? I desire Christ's return. I I, I long for the day when um, all things are new, right? When the brokenness of this world is gone, when sin is gone, right? I I desire that so much that I'm compelled to pray for it. It's like praying for the lost. 
We know that God will save whom, whom he wills to save. And there's nothing that we can do to, to, to interfere with that, right? We can't stop it. We can't delay it. We can't change it. He's going to save whom he saves, right? So does that mean we don't pray for the lost? No. Why? Because we desire, we desire to see the lost saved. And so, and so we pray for it, right? And so it is biblical, I believe, to pray for things that God says is a guarantee. John says, grace, mercy, peace, you'll have it. It's a guarantee. And Paul says in his greetings, you know, I'm going to pray for these things for you. Why? Because he desires it so much. So it is okay for us to pray for what God promises. And I think we do so out of a, out of a desire to see his will done. Um, but in this case, you know, John's saying, hey, listen, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Um, I think it's encouraging, right? Reminding us of the promises that we have in Christ, reminding us of what we have in Christ. It's encouraging and should have a sanctifying effect on us because what it does is we consider grace and mercy and peace. What it does is it takes the focus off of us, right, and, and places the focus on Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but it always seems like when I focus on myself is usually when I find myself in states of discouragement, right? And when I focus on Christ is usually when I find myself in a state of encouragement. And so I think in part that's what John is doing is he's encouraging the uh, the elect lady and her children, encouraging us, right, as he's taking our focus off of ourselves and reminding us of the grace and the mercy and the peace that we will have or that we do have in Christ. Now listen, when it comes to these blessings, Right, grace, mercy, peace—these spiritual blessings. Uh, I've kind of categorized it in, in, in two categories. Right, we have we have it where we have them positionally, and then we have them what I'll call um, practically. Right, uh, concerning our positional grace and, and mercy. Listen, grace—and I know we've examined this in the past. We'll do it again, as much as Scripture uh, proclaims it. Grace is what uh, unmerited favor. Right, it's getting the good that we don't deserve, right? That's grace, getting good that we don't deserve, unmerited favor. We don't deserve his favor. That's good. We're getting it. That's grace, right? Then mercy is not getting the bad that we deserve, right? So what do we deserve? We deserve wrath, right? We deserve judgment, right? But God, because of his grace, right, has what removed the wrath from us and the judgment from us because he placed it on Christ, and that's mercy. So here we have, positionally speaking, right, before God, we have grace, unmerited favor. We've got mercy, not getting what we deserve. Grace and mercy working together then produces a positional peace with us or for us, that we are now at peace with God, that we're no longer enemies of God but at peace with God. Let's look at a couple of scripture references that refer to this. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and we're going to look at 4 through 9. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, dealing with grace and, and mercy. He says, but God, I love, anytime you read in the scripture, uh, the phrase, but God, just highlight it, circle it, underline it. I love the but gods in scripture. But God, being rich in mercy. Right, not giving us what we deserve. Because of the great love which he has loved us, or which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, by grace, right, you have been saved. Right, and raised up with him and seated. I'm sorry. Uh, and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see God's grace and God's mercy in his work to save us, which then has produced, positionally speaking, as, as in how we stand before God, which has produced then a positional peace with God, that we are now at peace with God. And we see that proclaimed in part in Romans 5, chapter, uh, sorry, 5, verse 1. Romans 5, 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been what justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as believers, right, John is in part reminding us of the positional and the positional grace and mercy that we have that has resulted in peace with God, right? But we also have these these blessings practically, right? They, they didn't it's not a one time like God's grace and his mercy, right? And and peace, it's not a, a one time event with God. I mean, positionally it is, right? I mean, as far as how we stand before God, right, when it comes to salvation, right, and our relationship with God, it's it's a, a done deal. Right? I mean it's 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 finished. Okay. But but we have as believers now an active and an ongoing and I I'll call it practical grace and mercy that we receive from God, right? Daily constantly, right, that also, again, result in spiritual peace in our lives. Not not peace with God, but this practical grace and mercy result in a practical peace in our lives. Listen, God continues as believers to grant us grace and mercy, right? Now, there are those things that we would say are common, common grace and and mercy. I mean, this weather is awesome, isn't it? I walked outside this morning and I was like, whew. I mean, awesome, right? That's that's what I would say is common grace. We got rain yesterday, right? We don't deserve nice weather, right? Um, God at times gives it to us, right? But he gives it to the pagans as well, right? So that's, that's common grace. They get it, we get it, right? But the grace and mercy specifically that I think John is referring to here that, that we will have, the ongoing practically, right, is what I would say is, is spiritual grace and and mercy, spiritually speaking, right? Um God still gives us good, doesn't he? Right? The fact that we as believers are, are here this morning, right? And that we're able to gather together in fellowship and in worship for the express purpose of, of hearing him him speak, right? And and being changed by his speaking, right? Being fed spiritually as a result. That's that's grace, isn't it? We we still don't deserve that, right? It's not like we go from the state of undeserving before salvation to deserving after salvation, right? We we still don't deserve the spiritual good that God bestows on us, right? But but he does and he's doing it right now as we as a church are worshiping and and fellowshipping, right? 
We don't deserve that. But instead, now, even as redeemed, right, we still deserve his wrath and we still deserve judgment. Again, we don't go from, from, from deserving to undeserving. We, we still deserve all that. And, and yet now as his forever children, right, he continues to lavish us with his grace, right, as he withholds, right, his, his wrath. And, and the knowledge of this as, as believers, right, should produce peace in our lives, right? Spiritual peace in our lives. We, we shouldn't, doesn't mean that we don't have these things, right? Because we do, right? And we're, we're fallen, right? We, we do, I do, you do, right? But as overall patterns in our lives, right? The believer is going to have spiritual peace in her, her life, right? And, and again, sanctification, growth process, all of this, we're going to put in that same category. We're going we're gonna to grow. As we grow spiritually, right? I think we'll see these things increase in our lives as well. God's ongoing grace and mercy, again, should provide us with an abiding peace in our lives. A peace, okay, tying it back into the rest of of, uh, these first three verses. A peace that produces love, right? Love for God and love for others. A love then that as we grow in sanctification, grows with us. The maturing the maturing believer will then come to love God more and to love others more. We then as believers should be seeking, pursuing actively to love God more and to love others as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um again your word. Um and for speaking to us through your word. We know that your word is, is about you. It's, it's not about us, but it's about you, and yet we gain and we benefit as, as your word is proclaimed and as you, you give us spiritual understanding then to apply it to our lives. And for that, we are, um, we are forever grateful. Father, it's, it's my... Um, it's my desire that we, we would, as a church, love each other as we ought and that we would, as a result, then grow in unity as we ought. And, and I know that it's broken, and I know that we um, so all too often just fail and fall short in those areas. In fact, Lord, we need you um, working in us and through us to, to do that. I think if we were all honest and open about it, we'd desire it, and yet we honestly stink at it, and so that's why we need you um, to do it. And so we ask that you would, God, and and we ask that you would primarily f- for your glory, that we would we would love you more, that we would love others more, and that we would grow first and foremost. That you would be glorified as as your testimony through our lives are proclaimed to the nations. And I pray that you would do it also for our good, because we know that it's for our good that we love you more, that we love one another more, and that we grow as, as a church. So Jesus, we do ask that you would do it, that you would do it for your sake. Lord, we do love you, and again, we, we, thank, you for, um, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would, this week, I know, uh, as we get distracted um, by life, 
that you would keep our hearts and our minds firmly fixed and focused on you, firmly fixed and focused on, on your word and what it is you have to say to us through your word. Jesus, again, it's, it's because of you that we're here, um, and, and it's for you. It ought to be for you that, that we're here. I pray that it is, that you would make it so. It is in your precious and holy name that we pray these things.